Over the past several weeks, we've spent time in the books of Nahum and Jonah, examining both the justice and the grace of God. And even in the book of Nahum, which seems to be all about God's role as judge and his anger and wrath towards sinful Nineveh, even there we see a glimpse of God's grace. Look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. We read a few weeks ago. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. In the midst of this book that seems to be all about judgment and violence and destruction, we see God's love. We see God's grace for those who take refuge in him. Now, in the book of Jonah, God's grace was a little more obvious than Nahum. It was obvious not only towards the wicked city of Nineveh upon their repentance, but also to Jonah, the reluctant, disobedient and bitter prophet. And in these somewhat obscure, sometimes neglected Old Testament books, we learn about how God's justice and grace can be seen not only in God's character, who he is, but also in his actions, how he deals with the world and how he deals with people like us. Now, think about all that. It all sounds nice, right? But really think about it for a second and ask yourself this. How can God be both just and gracious at the same time? How can it be done? I mean, after all, aren't those two things inherently contradictory? We typically define justice as getting what you deserve. No more, no less. That's justice. Meanwhile, we define grace as not getting what you deserve. You deserve something bad and yet you're given something good. So how can we sit here and say that God is both just and gracious when justice and grace seem to be complete opposites? How can these two attributes of God really, truly, and fully coexist? And even more specifically, how does this seeming contradiction carry over to God's dealings with sinful human beings, people like us? Well, this question of how God can justly punish sin and yet also be gracious to sinners troubles a lot of people. And almost 500 years ago, it almost troubled one man to the point of death. He was a young man, a good Catholic, actually even better than a good Catholic. He was a monk for crying out loud. And that young man's name was Martin Luther. And as Martin Luther wrestled with this question of justice and grace and how they can coexist in the character and actions of God, he found himself in the book of Romans, which is where we find ourselves today. So open up to Romans chapter one, starting in verse 16. Feel free to use one of the Bibles that we provide. And if you don't own a Bible, take one of those home with you as you leave. But before we read together, let's pray as a church. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you for the privilege of reading your word. I pray you'd give us hearts and minds and ears that are willing to hear it. I pray that your spirit would move throughout this room in our hearts and in our minds, softening our hearts and softening our minds to hear what it is you have to say. 
Father, thank you for your church, uh, this church specifically, that has been here for right at 25 years. There have been ups and downs. People have come and gone for various reasons, and yet you've been faithful through it all. And Father, we are grateful for that. We are humbled that you've used this church in the past to do good things in our community, to spread your gospel, to glorify your name. And Father, we ask that you would continue to do that, that you would use us however you see fit to bring yourself glory. Father, be with us this morning as we read about who you are and who we are. And I pray that everything we read and every question we ask and every thought that we have would be taken captive for the sake of Christ. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. These two verses, which most commentators believe set up the rest of the book of Romans, well, these two verses kept Martin Luther up at night. Martin Luther wrestled with the question of how God can be both just and gracious towards sinners and how sinners like him and sinners like us could possibly answer to a God who is so unlike us, a God who is holy, righteous and pure. Because Martin Luther didn't believe that any of those things were true about him. And those things aren't true about us either in our sinful state. But the conclusions that Martin Luther came to after much theological study and fervent prayer, this crisis of the mind that he was having, the blood, sweat and tears that he shed, the conclusions that he came to truly changed the world. We'll talk about that more next fall as next fall will mark the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation that Martin Luther kickstarted. That's a big deal. We'll go into more detail of the ramifications of the Reformation next year. But for now, let's go back to the beginning. The beginning takes us back to 1505. Martin Luther, a young aspiring lawyer, was walking through the woods one evening by himself. And as Martin Luther is walking, he's caught in an unexpected thunderstorm so bad that he feared for his life. Luther records that a large flash of lightning knocked him to the ground, scared him to death. He tried to get up, fearing that he might not make it out of those woods alive. And in that moment of desperation, Martin Luther prayed to God to save him. And Martin Luther, in his desperation, committed that if God got him out of this mess... If he survived, he promised to dedicate his life to God's service as a monk. Sure enough, Martin Luther survived the storm and he actually kept his word. He left his studies to become a lawyer and instead became a monk. But even after Martin Luther devoted his entire life to trying to please God, everything in his life revolved around pleasing God as a monk. 
Even with that, he still felt no sense of peace, no sense of joy with God. Some of the words that Martin Luther wrote, With what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this. I ask for that. For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. Author Roland Bainton writes of Luther. He fasted sometimes three days on end without a crumb. The seasons of fasting were more consoling to him than those of feasting. Lent was more comforting than Easter. He laid upon himself vigils and prayers in excess of those stipulated by the rule. He cast off the blankets permitted him and nearly froze himself to death. At times he was proud of his sanctity and would say, I've done nothing wrong today. But then misgivings would arise. Have you fasted enough? Are you poor enough? He would then strip himself of all save that which decency required. He believed later in life that these practices had done permanent damage to his digestion. So we have Martin Luther, a man who realized he was a sinner, devoting his life to God's service as a monk, doing everything in his power to gain approval with God. And yet he simply couldn't find peace. No matter what he did, there was still this little part of him that just continued to gnaw away, knowing that he was still a sinner and that God was still holy and that there was a separation between the two. And Martin Luther seemed confused as to what could possibly bridge that separation between him and God. But then Martin Luther turned to the book that we read today, the book of Romans, and he found what he was looking for as he wrestled with the justice and grace of God. Now, we already read Romans 1, 16 and 17, but what else did Martin Luther find that calmed his fears, that eradicated his doubts? Well, as we look at some of the core passages of this book, one by one. We're going to see that the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, is almost clinically addressing questions that Martin Luther had, questions that you might have right now, questions about how this holy and righteous God can be both just and gracious towards sinners. So let's pick back up where we left off in Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, 
They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. How is Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 25 comforting? How is that comforting? The wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, if you sit here this morning, like Martin Luther did, and you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, I'm ungodly. I'm unrighteous. Well, if that's how you feel, then these verses aren't very comforting. And that's the truth of it. They aren't comforting and they're really not meant to be comforting. I mean, these verses sound like something Nahum would write in the Old Testament, right? Wrath, judgment, wickedness, rebellion. But look at these verses the way that you would look at a trip to the doctor. Let's say, hypothetically, you've been feeling kind of weird lately and you're concerned that something might be wrong. But you can tell that something's just not right. So you schedule an appointment, you do some tests, you run some scans, hoping that the doctor can give you some kind of of answers. Now, in that situation where deep down, you know, something's wrong. What do you want the doctor to do in that moment? Do you want the doctor to say things that will offer you comfort? Do you want the doctor to tell you that everything's fine, that you are totally normal? Or do you want the doctor to tell you the truth about what's wrong? If you're wise, you want the doctor to tell you the truth, even if the truth is disturbing. Because when the doctor tells you the truth, then you can work together and figure out what needs to be done to address the illness. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Paul's not trying to offer comfort in verses 18 through 25 of Romans 1. Paul is offering an honest, straightforward diagnosis. He's clearly stating man's problem. What prevents him from being able to stand before a holy, righteous and pure God. And for Paul, the diagnosis is sin. Now, sin takes lots of different forms. It can manifest itself in lots of different ways. It can lead to all kinds of complications in all kinds of areas of life. But the diagnosis is pretty clear. It's sin, rebellion against God, deserving punishment. Paul says that's man's problem. That's Martin Luther's problem. That's your problem. And that's my problem. He goes on in Romans chapter three, verse nine. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Jump forward to verse 22. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's the diagnosis sin. But Paul takes it even further. He doesn't just stick with the diagnosis. 
he makes it clear that this illness of sin, it's not just any illness. It's an epidemic. Everyone is affected by it. It's not just one people group or race, sex, nationality, education level, political party, socioeconomic standing or generation. Old or young, rich or poor, male or female, boxers or briefs. This sin sickness is an epidemic. It's an epidemic to the point that every single person, according to Paul, Jew and Greek, Every person is affected. Now back to Martin Luther. Martin Luther gets this part. He understood this part. His words that we read earlier make that very clear. He said, I am dust and ashes and sin when I stand before God. Martin Luther understands this. There is an illness that has affected everyone. But the question then becomes, well... What comes next? Because it's really not all that helpful if a doctor can tell you what's wrong, but then be clueless on what to do about it. Can't prescribe you any medicine, can't send you to any specialists, can't give you any type of references. That's not all that helpful. Well, to be honest, Luther wasn't really sure what came next either. I mean, all the stuff that he tried to address the illness, the sin within him. The religious practices, the giving up of pleasures and joys, devoting his whole life to the service of the church. Martin Luther tried all of this stuff to address the illness that he knew he had, and yet none of it worked. Maybe that's how you feel right now. You've tried religious practices. You've given up all the stuff you're not supposed to do. You've tried doing all the things that you are supposed to do. You've tried to be generous. You've tried to be honest. You've tried to be humble. You try to do all these good moral things. And yet there's still this little part of you that just feels like something's wrong. It just doesn't feel like anything's working. And maybe like Martin Luther, that keeps you up at night. Well, to be honest, that should keep you up at night. If you believe that there really is a God up there who is holy and righteous, that you really are guilty of sin, and that you really do deserve punishment, but don't know what the cure is, well, you should be up at night. You should lose sleep over something like that. But the good news is that as Romans goes on, Paul continues And Paul tells us not just the diagnosis, not just the epidemic state of this illness that is sin, but Paul tells us that God has provided a cure. Look at Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained by access, by faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Hear that phrase? The wrath of God? Sound familiar? Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, think Adam, Garden of Eden, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made Righteous. And finally, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul talks a lot about the law that God gave Moses way back in the day on top of Mount Sinai. You know, the law had a purpose. It had a point. It had a role for God's people back then, and it can still be useful and can still be valuable for God's people today. But, and this is a big but, the law couldn't save sinners. Ultimately, it couldn't improve the standing of sinners before a holy and righteous God. This wasn't because the law itself was defective, but rather because it was weakened by our sinful flesh. You might say it was an issue of user error. But while the law couldn't and still can't save sinners, one of the wonderful things that the law does do is it points to the one person who could and still does save sinners. That being Jesus Christ. Because Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement. Adam and Eve... Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Israel as a whole, all the people we read about in the Old Testament, all the people we read about in the New Testament, Martin Luther, you and me, we didn't fulfill the righteous requirement, but Christ did. He perfectly obeyed and submitted to God. He fulfilled the law that we and our sin couldn't fulfill. Now, you hear all that stuff and you think, man, what a swell guy, right? What a good guy, Jesus. 
being so wonderful, being so perfect, obeying God the way everyone else does it. That sounds great. Well, as swell as Jesus was in his perfect obedience, his incarnation, even that wasn't enough to save sinners. To be honest, Jesus's life wasn't enough to address the epidemic, wasn't enough to heal the illness. That also required his death. And that's where Hebrews can be so helpful. Hebrews chapter seven, starting in verse twenty six. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And verse 26, as it is. Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The perfect life, the perfect obedience of Jesus, it's all well and good. But on its own, that wasn't the cure for our sin. Christ, the great high priest, had to offer up a sacrifice to God, not a sacrifice of goats or chickens or any other animal you can imagine, not a sacrifice of taking off blankets in the middle of the night and freezing to death, not a sacrifice of us proving how holy we are. Christ offered up himself for sinners once and for all, perfectly sufficient to God, the father himself. Not just to cleanse us on the outside, but to cleanse us on the inside as well. Forgiving our sins, dealing with the epidemic disease of sin. And because of that, all those things that Paul said in Romans, all those things are true. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. If you are a follower of Christ, look at me in the eyes right now. If you are a follower of Christ... You have peace with God right now. You have peace with God because of what Christ has done for you. We have been and we are being and we one day will be made perfectly righteous. 
We are under no common condemnation of the law, but we are free to live by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We are free to please God, not through our own efforts at morality, but because God has given us his spirit. And because of all these things that God has done in you, you can look forward to glory as the sons and daughters of God that you were always meant to be. So the answer to how God can be both just towards sin and gracious towards sinners? Well, the answer is found on a cross outside of Jerusalem. Martin Luther wrote these words years later after reading through the book of Romans. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the righteous shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Martin Luther discovered, and you and I have discovered, that the cross is the answer. The place where God gives up his son to pain, humiliation, and death. The place where the son gives himself up to pain, humiliation, and death. And it's all for sinners like us. Because while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Medieval theologian Anselm writes, No one but God can make the satisfaction for sin. No one ought to make it except man. Therefore, it is necessary for the God man, Jesus, to make it. Much later, theologian Emil Bruner writes, The cross is the event in which God makes known his holiness and his love simultaneously in one event in an absolute manner. And Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful thing to hear if you are a follower of Christ this morning. That you are the righteousness of God. Now, as we reach the end of things today, this is often the time where preachers like me will break out the application. And the truth is, like I've mentioned on some Sunday mornings before, I don't have any. Most weeks we do. This week we don't. I don't have any next steps for you to take. I don't have things for you to try. I don't have goals for you to set. Because in the big scheme of things... It's not really my job to tell you what to do. It's my job to tell you who God is and who you are. So as we think about that this morning, who God is and who you are, this is the conclusion that we come to. God is just, fully just. God is gracious, fully gracious. And you are a sinner who has been and yet is also still being cured of your disease 
through Jesus Christ. Now, going back to that metaphor of sickness, you've ever known somebody who's had a serious illness, you know that recovery doesn't happen overnight. A person can be healed of an illness, but still have a very long road to recovery. They may have to learn how to do simple things like walk and talk, things they once took for granted. That's kind of sort of like where we are, isn't it? We're healed because of Christ's blood, and yet we're still recovering, still learning how to walk, still learning how to talk. But the good news is that God has given us his Holy Spirit for that purpose. There will be ups and downs that come along with it. There will be steps forward and steps back. But as we look forward to that day when we will make a full recovery, we know that we will once again reflect the image of God the way that we were actually meant to, fully and completely. And that day we won't just be recovered, we'll be better than we've ever been before. And best of all, we'll be forever in the presence of the one who healed us. The one who offered himself for us, Jesus Christ. I'd like to close by reading Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And again, I just want you to know that all these things that Paul says, all these things are true of you. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning, you all walk out of here more than conquerors. Not because you've conquered anything, but because Christ conquered sin by offering up himself. You can walk out of here knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, I have no next steps for you. I have no goals for you to set. I have no things for you to do. I simply want you to think about this. Think about who God is. Think about who you are. And live like the person that you are. Be who you already are. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ has risen and Christ will return. And nothing can separate us from the love of God because of what Christ has done. So as we leave today, simply be reminded of that. 
that God is just and God is gracious and that you are a sinner and that while we were still weak, Christ died for people like you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to come to a place and sit here and read your word and consider who you are. Not everybody has that privilege. Not everybody has that opportunity to come to a place where we can sit together and hear from your word and ponder who we are, who you made us to be originally, and how you've redeemed us through your son's blood. So, Father, I pray that as we sit here, that we wouldn't speculate about who you are. We wouldn't try to come up with some fancy new theories of who you are, who we are, but we would rather just sit and listen to your word. Thank you that your word not only tells us of the cure that we need, but tells us that we need a cure in the first place. And Father, thank you that you've provided the cure through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that as we leave here this morning, we would all leave healed. That we would all leave (coughs) having peace with you, being reconciled to you. That later tonight, as we lay our heads down on our pillows, that we could sleep well, knowing that we're in good standing with you. Thank you for your son who offered up himself that we might be in good standing with you, that we might be your sons and be your daughters. I pray that we'd be reminded of it and that we would live like it. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, if you're in that state we talked about earlier where maybe you've tried some different religious practices, you've flirted with different kinds of faiths, you've flirted with different spiritual disciplines or forms of spirituality, and yet there's still just something gnawing at you that doesn't feel right, there's still a hole there that just seems to be empty, talk to one of our elders. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, happy to talk about the cure that we've found that God has offered through his son, Jesus Christ. Again, we're very grateful that you're here this morning. We certainly hope that you'll be here later this afternoon at 5 p.m. as we celebrate 25 years of ministry. We're grateful for all of you who have put so much thought and prayer and time and service and finances into this church over the years, and we couldn't do it without people like you. And so we are incredibly grateful, and we pray that you celebrate that with us tonight and that you would celebrate God's goodness and God's graciousness towards us as a church. Thank you.